You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Here again with us on the podcast, this time to share with us his reflections on the Sermon on the Mount is Dr. David Bentley Hart. Welcome back, Dr. Hart, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Hello. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Yeah, I guess uh, before we get started on the Sermon on the Mount, I guess a little bit of good news that we have is it looks like we have a full season of baseball ahead of us now. Uh, the world is not entirely, entirely uh, devoid of grace. So, <laughs> I think of baseball as kind of the perfect game. I guess I think of the Sermon well, on the well, Mount. They're doing everything they can to destroy it, of course, between the uh, the sabermetric analysts with their three true outcomes and launch angles on the one hand, and the rules committee on the other, doing everything they can to ex- to remove as much of the subtlety and complexity of the game as they can. Um, but still, you know, uh, it's it's as near to perfect uh, as a game can be. <laughs> well, if I think of baseball as kind of the perfect game, I think of the Sermon on the Mount maybe as the perfect sermon. And so what I thought we would do is just uh, kind of work through it together based upon your translation of the New Testament. So I'll start with the first section, which I'll call, based on your translation, on the blissful ones. Yeah. Well, before you do that, then let me just say, I mean, of course, that is uh, the uh, the use of the word uh, blissful. <laughs> is the thing for I knew that I would receive the greatest uh, criticism, and I certainly did, but I'm entirely impenitent because uh, I just think blessed is, given uh, its um, rather flat connotations today, simply doesn't, doesn't capture the meaning of the word makarios. So uh, I'm sticking with it on the blissful ones. Uh, in my looking into it, I understand in the Greek tradition, the highest kind of blessing reserved for the gods was makarios, that it was a, yeah. it was a wonderful kind of blessing. Right. It's, it's, it's actually um, a, a, a strong, even, uh, even somewhat poetically excessive word in many contexts, you know. But definitely, uh, in origin, it meant more than 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 merely a good fortune or a good stead. It it, it uh, most definitely had about it that connotation of supreme happiness. Yeah, so it's it really is shocking in that, and sometimes blessed doesn't do enough to capture that. It's rather like the Sanskrit word ananda. Not that that matters either. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'll let you get going. Uh, I, okay. Uh, Now seeing the crowds, he ascended the mountain, and when he seated himself, his disciples approached him, and opening his mouth, he taught them, saying, How blissful the destitute, abject in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. How blissful those who mourn, for they shall be aided. How blissful the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. How blissful those who hunger and thirst for what is right, for they shall feast. How blissful the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. How blissful the pure in heart, for they shall see God. How blissful the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. How blissful those who have been persecuted for the sake of what is right, 
for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. How blissful you when they reproach you and persecute you and falsely accuse you of every evil for my sake. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in the heavens is great, for thus they persecuted the prophets before you. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't think the Beatitudes require much in the way of exposition. I will say, though, that, that uh, just uh, in, in a general sense, what struck me most forcibly about, about the Sermon on the Mount, and you see it reflected in the Beatitudes, when I was translating it, was the degree to which it was clearly, though addressed to everyone, addressed first and foremost to the poor. Uh, to the oppressed, to the indebted, to those who were likely to be the victims of others' violence or exploitation, and then secondarily addressed maybe to those same persons in the role of potential exploiters and of potential, you know, saying that, you know, not only is it God's will that they should receive mercy, but that they themselves must be merciful. Uh, and, I mean, you see this reflected throughout the sermon. Most of the emphasis of the Sermon on the Mount is uh, remarkably pragmatic because it's dealing with the daily concerns of the poor, the oppressed, the destitute, those who are abject and excluded. But in addition to that, 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 that the extraordinary amount of just genuinely practical advice the sermon has, more than translations tend to show, there's also this this overflowing promise of divine love as, as the consolation, the reward, the ultimate destiny of those whom the world values as nothing. And that's where the sermon begins. You know, that, that a bliss, not just, not just, God's willingness to be benign, but but the actual bliss, a divine bliss, is promised to those who this world, whom this world does not value or love or treat with gentleness or peace. Well, one thing that strikes me is that if you think of the first psalm, which begins, you know, blessed is the one who does not walk in the way of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners and whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Well, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water whose leaf does not wither and whatever they do prospers. And so there could have been a sense that people who were poor might've been poor because they'd done something wrong. And so for, for Jesus to call them blessed. Well, I mean, uh, you know, even without the, the hint of moral opprobrium, it was perfectly acceptable throughout most of the ancient world to look down upon the poor. Yeah. Even if, if not to view them as concretely culpable for their sins, it was perfectly well to view them. It was perfectly acceptable, even morally acceptable, to lavish a certain contempt on them. You find this throughout Gre- Greco-Roman uh, culture. One would think to a lesser degree in Jewish culture, um, uh, uh, the, but, but even then you see that there is a, you know, there's always an aristocracy, a wealthy class. And uh, since we're going to be talking about the sermon as a whole, let me put this in context. I mean, this is a period when a great deal of the, the sort of the crisis of the rural and uh, and lower classes, and even to a degree of the artisanal class, was a debt crisis. I mean, you know, a great deal of the wealth 
of the wealthy uh, uh, was was that of creditors, those who held uh, others in debt. And to be indebted was always to be in a state of extreme peril. There was no social safety net, but in addition to that, to be a debtor was almost to be de facto a criminal. You could be thrown into a debtor's prison, stripped of of your belongings, stripped of your family, forced even to sell yourself or yourself and your family into slavery. So the persons he's addressing are very far from having a sense of being <laughs> destined for bliss. Right. Or, or being uh, viewed as upright, righteous, decheos in mm-hmm. the eyes of their culture. So even again, if even if the accusation isn't explicitly against them, isn't explicitly one of moral failure, it is nonetheless one of occupying a, a station in society that somehow morally uh, inferior. Mm-hmm. So that would have been an encouragement for them to be called blessed or blissful, Macarios. The next section I'll entitle uh, on good works which are seen and which glorify the Father in the heavens. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should become insipid, by what shall it be made salty? It is no longer of any use except to scatter outside for people to tread upon. You are the light of the world. A city set upon a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do they light a lamp and place it under the dry goods basket, but rather they place it upon a lampstand, and it illumines all those who are in the house. So let your light shine out before humanity, so that they may see your good works and may glorify your Father in the heavens. Yeah, again, I'm I'm at something of a loss, I think, to be able to to add to that. But it is, you know, it's something we have to balance against the um, the warnings Jesus issues not to uh, not to parade one's righteousness before the world, not to act for the sake of the approbation of others, uh, the social ap- approbation. But that does not mean not to practice good works as as, uh, a declaration of the nature of God and of the nature of the human relationship to God, and therefore good works should still be the the visible countenance of your of of your of your person in the world you know it's you know so you have a fine line to tread there elsewhere in the gospel let you know don't let one hand know what the other is doing don't uh, don't be like the hypocrites when you fast. But that's not to say, obviously, for him, that the work of righteousness is simply a kind of secret that, that is practiced in, in total privacy. Rather, it's a way of life that's luminous with, with the divine. Yeah, as we go through the sermon, we see different ways of living that are recommended, and it's because of this way of living that people are to just notice they, they couldn't help but notice if they were, if Jesus' disciples were living this way. Well, let's go on to the next section then on fulfilling the law and the prophets. Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. For amen, I tell you, until heaven and earth shall pass away, not a single iota or single seraph must vanish from the law until all things come to pass. Whoever breaks one of the least of the commandments and teaches people to do likewise shall be called least in the kingdom of the heavens. But whoever performs and teaches it, this one shall be called great in the kingdom of the heavens. For I tell you that unless your uprightness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, 
you shall not enter into the kingdom of the heavens. Well, again, you know, I mean, this is always, uh, of, of course, one of the reasons why the Gospel of Matthew is thought to have been addressed to Jewish practitioners in the Greek-speaking world, you know, Jewish Christians in the diaspora, and uh, tries to put an emphasis on that which is least scandalous. Because, of course, the great, the, the great enigma, the great paradox of, of, of Christ's ministry elsewhere in this Gospel and others is that he, he is proclaiming a faithfulness to the law, even though his actions in the concrete would seem to violate certain, certain prescriptions of the law as understood in a purely legalist fashion. So the assurance that, 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 you know, nothing of the law, of the true law, is to be lost, it has a somewhat ironic resonance as you go onward in the gospel, right? Mm-hmm. And one has to understand, uh, that is this intentional? Is this on Matthew's part? Matthew's gospel actually is a very carefully constructed thing. Often it's accused of being sort of a, a capacious grab bag or a galimifry or something in which he just threw in everything and then multiplied it. Everything is doubled, you know, mm-hmm. in the gospel. Famously so. But actually, the, you know, it, I think it's much more obviously the case that there is a theological rationality that goes into that doubling, that, that there's a point being made. What exactly that point is has been a matter of dispute for some centuries. But I think that uh, the... the um, assurances of Christ that that he is entirely, or he intends entirely to affirm the law while at the same time visibly, radically in some ways, breaking strict observance is already a kind of reorientation of how he is a faithful Jew, thinks faithful Jews should understand the law. You know, it's, you know, so, you know, it's, it's quite in keeping with the Sabbath was made for human beings, not the not the opposite. Again, though, at, at this point, we're we're still you know very much in the realm of uh, of pronouncements for which you know no great commentary is necessary. You just have to make sure that you keep it in context of the story of the ministry of Christ as a whole, because otherwise it just looks like a contradiction. Well, I noticed that he's careful to say the law and the prophets. Right. Well, he's, so the, he, he's a he's a, a Jew of the Tanakh, right? It's not. It's uh, it's, and, and that puts him in the Pharisaic tradition exegetically, but it also very much is is characteristic of his own ministry, obviously, because it's obvious that uh, much of 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 the ministry, for much of the teaching, looks very much like. Uh, a resumption and a radicalization, even, of the teachings of that you find in well the the later Isaiah and Jeremiah and the prophets. Sorry, I interrupted you though. Well, that's that's kind of where I was going with that. That that you see, he's talking about the law and the prophets, so that it it does have this kind of forward trajectory with it. That the prophets come along, and he is really taking that up and pushing it to its logical conclusion. Yeah, right, yeah. Well, I mean, I think this is clearly, again, we know very little about the the so-called Sadducees, uh, except that we know that there were those of the temple cultists who, for whom the the scripture was the 600-odd 
ordinances of the law of Moses and not really much of anything else. And within that tradition, the prophets don't stand out as as a special sort of uh, hermeneutical guide to how the law is to be understood. Um, they're part of the tradition of Israel, but at the end of the day, uh, the keeping of the law in its manifest aspects, in its in its plain and literal sense, which even then, of course, couldn't be done in term. I mean, it, it, with absolute fidelity, uh, many of the aspects of the law at its uh, most problematic would, would not have been possible in the first century Judea. But uh, you know, we understand that 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 uh, when people try to suggest that, you know, there used to be the, you know, the sort of a coarse supersessionist notion, very current, that uh, Judaism was about the law and keeping the law and Christianity, about freedom, the freedom of the spirit, not noticing that, uh, of course, already this radical reinterpretation of fidelity to the law is already deeply written into Jewish tradition. It's, it's you know, many centuries of prophetic prophetic pronouncements and other things, and that Jesus is in a tradition of understanding the law and the covenants in these prophetic terms, not not as uh, a contract to be discharged with absolute precision, but as a way of drawing near to the presence of God and of serving one's neighbors. The things that you know, sacrifices mean nothing to God when the widow and the orphan are not cared for. Well, this gets us into the next section, really kind of extends the meaning of all of this. I'll call it on the penalty, which must be paid down to the last pittance. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to judgment. Whereas I say to you, that everyone who becomes angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment, and whoever says raka, to his brother shall be liable to the council, and whoever says worthless reprobate shall be liable to enter Hinnom's veil of fire. If therefore you bring your gift to the altar, and there recall that your brother holds something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar, and first go and be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Be quick to show good will to the plaintiff against you while you are out in the street with him, lest that plaintiff deliver you to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you are thrown into prison. Amen, I tell you, you shall most certainly not emerge from there until you repay the very last pittance. Now, this is one of those curious moments in the sermon where um, you have the universal address to humankind to adopt a certain character, to be at peace with your brother, not to be contentious, not to be cruel, not to vilify or abuse. But if you, as you follow that down, you see two things happening at once. You, you enter into what is clearly also a practical counsel for the poor and the indebted. Again, let me put, put this in context. I mean, it was, it was quite common for a creditor to exploit any kind of default, any failure to pay on a debt in a timely fashion as an excuse for dragging the debtor into court and despoiling him of what little he had, and if and in order to 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 do this, um, hand him over to the judge who would hand him over to the bailiff who would who would hand him put him into uh, the debtor's prison, and there's a system, of course, for discharging debts while in prison. So I mean, you, you can 
it's not that you're uh, entirely unable to do business, but you're you're not you're not a free man, right? Mm-hmm. In the system, and part of this, I mean, this is clearly, and this this leads on to what turns out to be a series of very practical counsels for the poor. Part of it is what he's saying is very should be taken very literally. If you're being dragged into court, you know, on the one hand, he's given his 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 um, you know he's made he's made the the moral point that you shouldn't you, you shouldn't abuse others and not expect to be judged in turn. But that having been said, when the issue becomes one of being dragged into court, um, being robbed by what is after all a fixed system, and it was a fixed system, be wise, be prudent. Settle out of court. Make peace with the plaintiff against you before you go into the court. But because in the court, you have no chance of winning. You are you are not one of the rich. You are not one of the powerful. So on the one hand, you've got Jesus, almost the social worker or community organizer speaking to the poor. But then also, and this is what I mean about it, what I think there's a, there's a, there's a very well-worked-out structure in Matthew— it also has uh, a certain sort of eschatological resonance to it, you know, that that uh, that if you're not reconciled in time, just as you cannot bring your offering to the to the altar in perfect purity of heart unless you're reconciled with your brother, if you in fact fail at reconciliation in general, you know, there there is a price to pay, and you will have to pay. To the very last, you know, pay pay to the last pittance, and that too, as you know from later, you probably know from later uh, patristic exegesis for others like Origen and others. This is an image also that can be read allegorically as regarding purification of the soul in the life to come. But it, but whatever you think of that, don't lose don't lose sight of the genuinely pragmatic content of the council. Yeah, in a practical way, it's don't let it's not letting anger drive you, starting in small things and building to large things, making it to where you can't reconcile, you can't work things out. That's that's going to go bad for you in all kinds of different ways. And I will point, let me say now, we'll get to it shortly, a sort of a figure appears in the sermon and this figure is often lost sight of because of translation. But it, three times he's simply called Oponeros, the wicked one, the evil one, the rogue. Now, in some cases, in most translations, that's turned into evil rather than the evil one. But even where it's recognized as evil, and it's often translated or treated at least as though it's a reference to the devil. Uh, actually, though, in context, he is talking clearly about a wicked man, basically the sort of creditor who will drag you into court and steal from you using the fixed mechanisms of a corrupt system, and who will abuse you and who will exploit you. But anyway, we'll get to that shortly. So, Okay. Right. Uh, call the next section on how men should be toward their wives. You have heard it said you shall not commit adultery, whereas I tell you that everyone looking at a married woman in order to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your right eye causes you to fall to remove it and fling it away from you, for it is expedient for you that one of your members should perish rather than your whole body should be thrown into the veil of Hinnom. 
And if your right hand causes you to falter, cut it off and fling it away from you. For it is expedient for you that one of your members should perish rather than that your whole body should depart into the veil of Hinnom. Moreover, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, he must provide her with the writ of separation. Whereas I tell you that everyone who divorces his wife, except in case of whorishness, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever weds a divorced woman commits adultery. Right. Well, I mean, there's actually there's a great deal there to unpack because you notice I translated it as a married woman. Um, because a, a yini in Greek uh, is generally not used of a maiden. Uh, you know, it's it, it, uh, who, who would be a korosion or any number of other words, or a parthenos, a virgin. But um, uh, a yini, or, or I'm not going to use the Erasmian translate uh, pronunciation, but anyway, uh, is is a married woman, and what that verse is saying is not that. Uh, I mean, it's not. It's not. It's not a silly uh, uh, exaggeration, as if every teenage boy who sees a pretty girl and feels himself drawn to her in not an entirely platonic way has committed uh, uh, the sin of adultery. Rather, it means specific. And what it says is, you know, uh, is speaking of anyone who's a man looking at a married woman, for the very, simply for the purpose of lusting after her. All right. I mean, intentionally looking at her with lust, because this actually feeds in to the, 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 uh, councils regarding divorce, uh, because there too we're talking about a very specific set of cultural conditions. The business about, you know, plucking out your eye, cutting off your hand, tossing it into the veil of Hinnom is a good reminder that, that in Jesus's usage, as in the usage of the uh, prophets, uh, the veil of Hinnom is principally just a sort of a, a waste heap for those uh, who are dead and, and uh, whose corpses are to be destroyed and those who, as a result, uh, have no uh, participation, at least in, at this time, would have no participation in the kingdom or in the, or in the resurrection. It's not an image of uh, an eternal hell, but it is an image of the destruction of the body and the life. But then he goes on, you know, you, you, you've heard it said that... Uh, or you've been told that that whoever would divorce his wife has to has to secure well whoever wants to secure the way this worked let me I want to get this exactly right <laughs> the law of Moses allows a man to divorce his wife it does not allow a wife to divorce her husband it's not we're actually talking about divorce in the modern sense in which you have two uh, persons in a legal situation that who are severing a marriage. This is a case that in which a man has grown weary of his wife, dislikes her once a younger wife. He has the right to expel her. He simply has to to uh, write a, a writ of uh, separation, an apostasion. When this happened, when he says he commit causes her to commit, or you know, uh, adultery, understand that a woman expelled from her home had no means of livelihood she was you know she had been thrown out of her home by her husband and as such was without a home without a family 
and generally this led to prostitution. So he's actually talking about, he's, he's actually describing the concrete objective reality, that, that a man who expels his wife forces her into a life of adultery. The man who marries, well, there it's almost certainly the case, and I, and I think you can demonstrate this from other, other remarks on divorce in the Gospels, that he's talking about the sort of man who, who as we saw above, willfully lusts after the wife of another man and who has contrived to bring about her divorce so that he can have her. And in, in so doing, again, uh, having having corrupted and destroyed the the the, uh, the marriage covenant that was uh, at, at that time the sole legally recognized protection of a woman of a certain age, uh, once she had left her father's house, has done it in order to make her his wife. And you know, Jesus is talking about you know, realities of his time, the way things generally happened. And so, curiously enough, though it's often not presented this way, the prohibition upon the writing of an apostasion and the expulsion of a wife from her home is entirely in keeping with his larger concern for all of those who are the victims of others' violence or greed or hypocrisy or uh, exploit exploitations. Women were, you know, a class who had no protection outside their fathers or their husbands' homes, and a, and and a, and a writ of divorce, though permitted by by the the, uh, the law of Moses, was one of the gravest imaginable injustices of the time. So in inveighing against it, it's very much like inveighing against those who would uh, exploit the poor. Seems like what's going on is Jesus is calling into account men who are playing a kind of cruel game with dependent women under their control. Oh, very much the case. All right, I'll go on to the next section, which I'll call on refraining from anything more than letting your yes be yes and your no be no. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear oaths falsely, and you shall render up to the Lord what your oaths are sworn upon. Whereas I tell you not to swear at all, neither by heaven, inasmuch as it is God's throne, nor by earth, inasmuch as it is the footstool of his feet, nor by Jerusalem, inasmuch as it is the great king's city. Neither swear by your own head, inasmuch as you cannot make a single hair white or black. Rather, let your utterance be yes, yes, no, no, because it is from the roguish man that anything more extravagant than this comes. Yeah, now that's the first appearance of this figure I mentioned above, Oponeros, the wicked man, the roguish man. Again, I, I've, I've never, the, the traditional translations there are very misleading. Uh, they often, you know, uh, anything beyond this comes from evil or from the evil one. Generally, you get the impression that's what what's being said is if you're doing something that that uh, is of dia diabolical provenance, that Satan is behind it. That the you know, it really is saying something much simpler. That the, these sort of extravagant promises, swearing about you know, it, it basically, this is the behavior of the person who's trying to cheat another person. Uh, first of all, you're taking oaths upon things that you yourself do not possess 
when, when a wicked man is trying to uh, convince you to take a loan at a higher rate of interest than you can afford, or for that matter, to buy a used car you can't afford, we don't have to leave it in the, the first century, but whatever, mm-hmm. it begins making extravagant claims and, and using these, these uh, uh, you know, wild rhetorical embellishments. You know, I'm the sort of man who would never dot, dot, dot. All of that is a way of deceiving others. All of that is a way of taking advantage of the credulity of others, of, of, of trying to overwhelm them with, with cheap rhetoric. It's a mendacity that uh, is precisely, you know, this is precisely the sort of man who will cheat you. Don't be like that. Don't fall for these. Don't don't uh, don't imitate. Simply say yes or no. Again, on the one hand, it's a moral. It's a mor- It's you know a moral counsel, but it's also to a very great extent a very very practical counsel for the poor. I mean, you know, one of the things we see even today, you know, that 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 the poverty of the poor is a source of great revenues for the rich. If they can only uh, convince the poor to indebt themselves beyond beyond the possibility of discharging that debt, you know, uh, we allow it too in our society. We we have all we allow all sorts of abuses by credit agencies or even by credit cards as you know as ways of making the inability of of the poor to to get anywhere near the principle of the loan they're trying to pay off a means of converting their poverty into greater wealth for the rich you know very much this is the sort of thing that that, that christ is trying to convince his listeners not the sort of traps he doesn't want them to fall into he's talking to poor uneducated people who can be swayed by con men so beware, beware, people that are doing that kind of swearing. Don't don't fall for that. Don't yeah, don't participate. Don't, don't fall into the trap of imitating them. Yeah. Okay. The next section I'll call on not opposing the wicked man by force and turning the other cheek instead. You have heard that it was said, "An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth." Whereas I tell you not to oppose the wicked man by force. Rather, whoever strikes you upon the right cheek, turn to him the other. As well, well, again, I mean, I said the same thing. I mean, this um, the, the temptation would be to oppose this this poneros, this wicked man who's trying to uh, take everything from you by force. Now, on the one hand, we can see this again as a moral counsel to being of by nature peaceable, but it's also again a practical piece of advice. You cannot win this way. You you can you know trying to oppose such a man uh, by force when he is protected by and served by a, a legal system that uh, does not have your interests at all at heart in heart is is fruitless and rather than responding with anger when struck on one cheek turn the other which which you know this is a good old Semitic idiom for saying you know. Even even when violence isn't uh, um, an option, <laughs> dignity always is. You turn the other cheek, he has to strike you with an open hand and confront you face to face. But but don't think that you can you can uh, get out of your terrible predicament uh, 
by letting him draw you into, into a confrontation, which is all the more likely to get you tossed into jail. So again, it is at once a moral, uh, a, 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 a moral instruction on, on remaining peaceful. It's also a practical instruction, again, intended first and foremost for the poor, for the destitute, for, for the indebted, the exploited. All right, let's continue on to the next section I'll call on judgments, oppressors, beggars, and borrowers. And to him who wishes to bring a judgment against you, so he may take away your tunic, give him your cloak as well. And whoever presses you into service for one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not turn away the one who wishes to borrow from you. Again, there's a both practical and moral advice. I mean, the practical advice is don't get dragged into court. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in the court, he has all the advantage. Uh, he wants to take something from you, then, you know, don't be so foolish as as to cling to it and to demand uh, justice from a system that offers no justice. Give him your cloak. Give him your coat. He presses you into service. Go ahead. Carry a load for two miles rather than one. But at no point give way to your anger or your sense of, of, of being aggrieved in part for moral reasons, no doubt, but also, again, for the very practical reason that you do not have the power to free yourself from this condition. Keep control of yourself, remember, you know. And at the same time, learn. I mean, you can see that a certain sort of character is being crafted here. One who is not going to allow himself to give way to anger, and beyond that, one who's going to cultivate within himself the sort of generosity and indifference to material possessions, indifference to his material conditions, that allows him freely to give when when others ask from him, to, to, to accept that their need is presumably greater than his, and even if it isn't, they wouldn't be asking if they were not in need, or at least you can presume as much. So... Um, you know, you can see here that the, the place where the, the, the formation of certain kinds of virtue is also the formation of a, of a character, that, of, of the sort of person who can survive in an environment of extraordinary social inequity. All right, let me go on to the next section, which I'll call on being perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You have heard that it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, whereas I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In this way, you may become sons of your Father in the heavens. For he makes his sun to rise on the wicked and the good and sends rain upon the just and the unjust. For if you love only those who love you, what recompense do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing that is extraordinary? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, uh, you know, one of the, the soaring passages, and it means what it says. I, uh, you know, <laughs> I uh, have to say, I have very little patience for certain sort of classically reformed or classically evangelical in the, in the original sense, evangelish, uh, attempt to suggests that you know that there's such a thing as works righteousness which is somehow an abomination to God and you know before God and that that uh, uh, what Paul taught which he didn't was that that uh, 
you know, faith and grace alone save and that works are merely manifestations of a prior of a prior state of election or whatever it's clear that that uh, you know no one can read the, the the synoptics and not know that jesus's basic message is salvation through good works to put it bluntly but it's more than that it is a spiritual it is a spiritual process obviously of genuine perfection of becoming spiritually perfect you know origin was clear so he means exactly what he says the, the the what you should be striving actively striving for in this life uh is not only to be pleasing to god but to be like god to be like the father as revealed in christ and that the nothing less than this is the vocation of the christian life you know it's uh it's a rather shocking uh, demand in one sense, but nonetheless, I mean, there it is. You know, the word there is teleos, which is you know fully formed, perfect. Um, it leaves no 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 room, obviously, for any half measures. That the purpose of of one's life is to become like God, uh, like God the Father, uh, and anything less than that is an inadequate moral aspiration. I have well, no idea what that means for us. Well, I'm, I mean, in the ancient world, the formation of virtue was a was a, a broad concern, right? And the formation of virtue was always understood as an imitation of of the divine. I mean, the the virtues are themselves uh, divinizing in a sense. I mean, that's even true in in Aristotle that the most human is that which is like the way of the gods. But I mean, still, uh, you know. I mean, that's an extraordinary, become perfect as your, your heavenly father is perfect, uh, is a yet more radical demand than mere virtue, right? Because cultivation of virtue is, on the whole, the cultivation of a certain mean in one's behaviors, you know, being neither too extravagant nor too parsimonious, you know, being... Uh, neither too given to wrath nor too passive. But all of that sort of falls away. I mean, we're not talking just about virtue, are we? When we talk about being perfect as God is perfect, because God is not virtuous. <laughs> God is the good as such. You know, it's a, you know, it's a well done, God. <laughs> you're, 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 you know, you've behaved well today. I mean, that's not that's not what we're talking about, is it? I mean, it's 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 a demand of absolutely staggering, you know, vertiginously ambitious uh, moral striving, and it's saying something more mysterious and more challenging, but ultimately more hopeful. I mean, it says something. There's a capacity in the human not merely to achieve the mean of habitual virtue, but actually a, a sort of coincidence of one's will with God's that's so perfect that it's not even just habitual anymore. It's more or less who you are, you know, in a way that transcends even your human nature. And there's not enough—I mean, I, I can't think of— you know, I, I can think of uh, certain Stoic authors who who recommend a very high degree of godly virtue. Aristotle surely too gives us the image of the virtuous man. Plato, you know, comes nearest when with uh, this notion of the eros for the good, 
but in ancient texts, I, I can't think of any any other that says anything quite this radical about what what your what the ends of your moral life should be. All right, let's continue with the sermon on this next part on the Father who sees and rewards what is done in secret, and make certain not to practice your righteousness before men in order to be watched by them. Otherwise, you have no recompense from your Father in the heavens. When you give alms, therefore, do not trumpet it aloud before you as those who are play-acting do in the synagogues and in the streets, so they may be lauded by men. Amen, I tell you, they have their recompense in full. But when you are giving alms, do not allow your left hand to know what it is your right hand does, so that your almsgiving is in secret, and your Father who watches what is secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like those who are play-acting, for they love to pray while standing in the synagogues and on the corners of streets, so that they may be visible to men. I tell you truly, they have their recompense in full. But when you pray, enter into your private room, and having closed your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who watches what is secret will reward you. Right. Well, I mean, as I said earlier, it, it, you know, you, you're given both uh, sides of the of this counsel on how to live the life of uh, of one who practices good works in a way that just spontaneously, radiantly reveals the character of the godly life and of God Himself. On the one hand, doing good works. Uh, without hindrance, without reluctance. On the other hand, when one's fulfilling one's obligations, principally spiritually, that would include even almsgiving, because a certain amount of almsgiving is is required. Don't do it for the purpose of a performance that will that will gain you the admiration of others. I mean, and again, it's evidence that part of the the moral force of the Sermon on the Mount is about the formation of character, because, you know, on the one hand, spontaneous performance of good works is expected, and it's expected in a way to be a kind of beacon, you know, a signal to others of how it is to live with God. But somehow you have to do it also in a way that doesn't call attention to you as the agent for the sake of uh, your position in society. And it's interesting. I mean, I, I think that in many ways that's the uh, the great challenge of, of, the, of the moral life is in this act of discrimination, which is often very hard, you know, to be honest. There is a difference between doing what's expected of you in order to win approbation, which is still better than not doing anything uh, good at all. I mean, you know, it's a, it, it, there is a reward that comes with it, and, it, and uh, you know, Jesus says they have their reward in, in full, and he's not even begrudging them the reward of the admiration of others. But that's not the same thing as being pure at heart. It's not the same thing, obviously, as being entirely filled up with and consumed by the goodness of God so that you are perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect whose gifts are don't come, you know, <laughs> we're not parasitic upon his need for the approbation of society, you know. And uh, I've always thought that the, the tension between those two parts of the sermon, you know, is in some sense the secret of the spiritual life, trying to, uh, you know, pass through the Simplegades there without getting crushed. Um, you know the clashing rocks. That is, if you know, if you know, your <laughs> Apollonius of Rhodes. There. 
Well, the idea is that the, all of this behavior is really done towards the Father and for the Father in the heavens. It's done such a way that unconsciously then others, other people will notice, but it's not done so that other people will notice, so that they will obviously see that people who are living this way are acting differently. Or the, although even then he does early on say he does, you know, you do it so other people will notice in the sense of noticing how splendid, <laughs> how splendid goodness is, what good, you know, what, what good works accomplish and how, and how they, 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 they manifest God's goodness, but not, not, so in one sense, yes, so other people will notice, but not notice you as such. Right. Uh, being the source of that goodness, and it's a, you know it's a, it's a much finer line to tread that uh, we'd like to make it easy, but it's not. And and I don't know if any of us have it because you know you have to wonder even when you uh, perform a good work in private, of course, uh, the degree to which you're seeking your own approbation <laughs> uh, can be you know that can be a temptation. It's not it's not as grave as the other, but it, but it's curious. I mean it, there 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 is. There's sort of a suggestion in the sermon that there comes a point in the moral life when you pass beyond uh, any calculation and the performance of works of love really is like the perfection of God in heaven. It simply is who you are, and uh, it's not a reaction, it's not a pathos, it's pure energia, it's purely the expression of what you have become in being refashioned in Christ being refashioned in the love of the Father. And as I say, I think that's the, you know, in some ways the secret of the spiritual life is that hard and continuous movement from one who acts for the sake of acting for the sake of the goodness of God and then the one who simply acts in perfect harmony with the goodness of God because one's will has become entirely uh, the same it has taken on the shape of God's will. All right, let's move on to the next section on how to pray. And when praying, do not babble repetitious phrases as the Gentiles do, for they imagine that they will be listened to by virtue of their prolixity. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Therefore, pray in this way. Our Father, who are in the heavens, let your name be held holy. Let your kingdom come. Let your will come to pass, as in heaven, so also upon earth. Give us today bread for the day ahead, and excuse us our debts, just as we have excused our debtors. And do not bring us to trial, but rescue us from him who is wicked. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory unto the ages. Yeah. Um, oh, that last bit, yours is the, 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 the kingdom, the power, and the glory is uh, in brackets, I assume, right? Because that's the right. majority of text, right? Um, I don't have my translation. In fact, uh, I have a second edition coming out next year, so I, I have recent. I have all the revisions in my mind. I don't have the original translation. So. Okay, yeah, that last part was in brackets. 
Right. Well, I mean, again, uh, on the one hand, you know, it's it's interesting, isn't it, that that uh, you know you're not trying to coerce God with with fine rhetoric. I mean, it's a very sensible. On the one hand, <laughs> understand that the act of prayer itself is already not a kind of uh, conjuration of divine benefits. But this is a perfect example of what I was talking about at the beginning of our conversation. Of, how translations have often obscured the very, very mundane, in some ways, very concrete, practical content of the sermon and how it's directed principally to the poor. Because after you get past the uh, pious uh, wish that God's will be done and his name be held holy and that his kingdom should come and all that, the supplications that follow, when translated accurately especially, are for very simple, concrete things. You know, give me enough bread for today. You know, it's it's it, you know, it's not give us today our daily bread. That almost captures it, daily bread. But it, but it really means a sufficient quantity to sustain life. I mean, this is the prayer of a poor person. Mm-hmm. I don't know where my next meal is coming from. God, get me through this day. And forgive us, well, or excuse our debts as we excuse those of our debtors, not forgive us our trespasses or forgive us our sins. I'm sorry, that's just a, a fake translation. That's not just a bad one. It means precisely what it says. Again, he's, this is a prayer for people who are deeply, deeply indebted. What binds them to their creditors, what binds them to the land, what binds them at times in genuine fetters in prison is our, our debts, and that's what ophinimata are. And is you know, praying to God, get me out from under this weight of debt that's crushing me, and at the same time demanding reciprocally that you remember this for those who owe you money, and you have to excuse them their debts, because um, this is the you know, the, this was the, the if you weren't a slave in this society and weren't a creditor, then you were a debtor. Almost certainly, unless you were one of those very lucky free artisans who could just make a living. Uh, but but for most people, you know, it was a debt economy. Lead us not into temptation is definitely wrong. Lead us not to trial. And among those trials, I mean, would literally be court trials. You know, you know, don't bring us into the courtroom. You know, that that is a form of pierasmos, where, as we've already seen, a rich man can strip you of your possessions or if he's not satisfied with what he can despoil you of, can have the judge hand you over to the bailiff, who will then put you in prison, and deliver us, you know, rescue us from this wicked man, is how I, I, I in my second edition, make it even more clear. Okay. Again, it's, it's that oponeros, that man who, who exploits and robs and abuses you. And, and uh, all of that is lost in the traditional translation. I don't you know, I don't begrudge generations of Christians their use of a, of a somewhat sanitized version of the Lord's Prayer. Right? That's what they've been given, and it's still a very beautiful prayer. And it's good to forgive people their sins and their trespasses. That's that uh, you know, so that you can take that as the larger moral context of of excusing debts in general. But what the prayer itself is actually about in the Greek is literally about the remission of debts. Which are the things that, that that do the most to keep the poor poor, and in a condition of perpetual anxiety over what they're going to eat today, what what 
whether they'll have food and clothing for the morrow and so forth. All right. The next section is on forgiveness. For if you forgive men their offenses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you should not forgive men, neither shall your Father forgive your offenses. Right. That speaks for itself. Right. Well, I mean, the thing that that helped me with is that I should not ask for something from God that I am not willing to extend to others, which was practically beneficial in my own life because learning how to forgive for me was as important as being forgiven. I needed I needed both of those things. Yeah. No, and, and again, I say there you have the spiritual and the moral context in which the specific the specific counsel to excuse your your debtors just as you would have God free you from your creditors is situated. So the practical advice is always then, as throughout the sermon, uh, joined to the larger moral spiritual version vision of the the character that's being created by imitation of the goodness of your Father in the heavens. The next section is on fasting, and. When you fast, do not adopt a sullen countenance as do those who are play-acting, for they disfigure their faces so that it is apparent to men that they are fasting. Amen, I tell you, they have their recompense in full. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you show yourself to be fasting not to men, but rather to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who watches what is secret will reward you. Yeah, well, uh, uh, yeah. Again, it's it's as with other the 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 ritual works required of you uh, are done for your own, you know, for your own spiritual purification and your own relation to God and neighbor. They're not done in order to uh, uh, gain you greater esteem in the eyes of society or or give a false. Uh, image of you as a person of, of great spiritual valor or, or anything of the sort. It's, uh, you know, covering the same ground as before that, 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 uh, you know, they're, they're, they're where the, the ideal is to be perfected, to become teleos, uh, not, not simply to become a theama, a spectacle, uh, mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, uh, a performance uh, for one's own aggrandizement. Yes, it's done. It's done towards the father. So the idea is to is to make that connection with the father stand out even that much more. I mean, I think all of these councils do show that what what is the ideal of being perfect as your father is in heaven. As as we've said, I think it, it comes down to a point of transition. Uh, in one's spiritual nature, where one wills not oneself, even wills not oneself as the agent of good deeds, but wills simply the good that God is, and that's who one then has become, the one whose will is simply the will of the goodness of God. Uh, and, you know, again, not easily achieved in this life, is certainly not achieved without considerable divine grace. But I think that's that's... You know, I think it's evident in the sermon again with these these emphases that that's what that word teleos, you know, perfect as your father in the heavens is perfect means is a point at which you have ceased to will yourself, even in willing the good, but you will only the good for the sake of the good who is God. Well, I think that's uh, important 
because you can people can look at the Sermon on the Mount as just a set of impossible commandments that nobody could ever keep. But if you go into it with that already sort of defeatist attitude, you're not even getting the idea of what you're attaining to or what the whole point of the exercise is. And, and is it really impossible? We say that, I mean, because it seems impossible to us, but, uh, you know, uh, are there, have there not been, perhaps in history, you know, short of Jesus himself, have there not perhaps been persons of such radiant goodness that they actually have become simply mirrors of God uh, in this life, you know, who simply are able to will the goodness of God in a divine manner, you know, as God wills the good and only the good. I'm not an Augustinian, you see, so I, and I'm certainly not a Calvinist. I don't believe in uh, this absolute disfigurement of the, of the image of God within us. I, I believe, you know, that, that the, you know, it, as Origen says, it means what it says. It literally means strive to become perfect, not in a kind of hopeless and paradoxical way, as if one is always making an asymptotic approach to an infuriatingly unattainable end, but rather that one is genuinely progressing into and becoming God. You know, I, I think that become perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect is already a sort of theosis verse. It's meant to be taken literally, or at least I agree with Origen that that's the way one should read it. Well, now we continue to the next section on how your heart goes where your treasure is. Do not store up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves penetrate by digging and steal. Yeah, Rather, I, 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 I regret that, that translation. And the second one is simply where thieves dig their way in. I was being too preciously exact about the Greek. Okay. Okay. Rather, store up for yourself treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves neither dig in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Which, of course, is true, right? But, but you know, isn't it interesting that, that, uh, that we don't read, even though that's explicitly written in the Greek as a commandment, not as, you know, he's not saying, don't... Uh, don't be fixated on, on, on your wealth. Don't be fixated on your possessions. It's explicitly a command not to store up wealth on earth. It's almost never read that way, you know, because, again, Christians down the centuries have become quite, quite uh, comfortable with the notion that it's okay to be rich, even though the, throughout the New Testament we're told again and again and again and again and again that it definitely is not uh, okay to be rich. Um, not that that means that we know exactly, you know, what counts as rich, what counts as, you know, sustainable life, what counts as, you know, pro providing for your family and what counts as excess. I'm not I'm not saying that we have an absolute gauge on this, but it, it, what always amazes me about that is, you know, it's you know, don't hoard treasure on earth, uh, but only in heaven. It's 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 explicitly uh, an imperative, not uh, not not a not a suggestion, and certainly not uh, advice or command. Simply not to be not to be overly attached to what you own. It's it's a pretty much an either or. You can have treasure in this life, or you can have treasure in heaven, and one or the other is where your heart will be found. 
The next section is on how the eye is the lamp of the body. The lamp of the body is the eye. Thus, if your eye be pure, your entire body will be radiant. But if your eye be baleful, your entire body will be dark. So if the light within you is darkness, how very great the darkness. Yeah, I mean, it's an obscure... There, the language is obscure, and there are lots of arguments about it. But I I think, remember, that uh, in the ancient world... The eye was both uh, afferent and efferent in its influence. That is, it not only took in the world, but it projected a certain power into the world. Understand it, right? So, in the light, the the eye is a kind of lamp in this way of seeing things. And the idea of an eye that's baleful, again, the word there is again, poneros, evil or wicked. And I think it, it might literally mean something like the evil eye when you, but but it might mean in the moral sense when you stare at someone balefully or or malevolently, you are in fact I don't know having a real influence, but you're doing something that's an actual act of spiritual aggression. So the practice of charity is also the practice of how you look at others, right? And and that has a, an almost. Uh, physical or physical spiritual valency to it that it doesn't for us now uh unless we're like you know a greek peasant who lives outside thessalonica and still actually believes in the evil eye and wears protections against it but assuming that's not the case i I think that's actually a reference to what was what was just a generally held theory that the eye goes out in the world and finds the object that there's a kind of intentionality and vision in which the eye projects a light that, that allows it to see. It doesn't simply receive the light from outside. And with it, it's projecting uh, an actual panevma, a spirit, or a spiritual, that's at once both in some sense physical, but also in another sense moral and spiritual. All right, continuing on the next section on how no one can be a slave to both God and a slave to mammon. No one can be a slave to two lords, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will stand fast by the one and disdain the other. You cannot be a slave both to God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not worry regarding your soul, what you will eat, nor regarding your body, what you will wear. Is not your soul more than food, and your body more than garments? See the birds of the sky, that they neither sow nor reap nor gather into granaries, and your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more excellent than they? But who among you can by worrying lengthen the span of his life by a single cubit? And why do you worry over clothing? Look closely at the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither labor nor spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his glory was garbed like one of them. But if God thus clothes the grass of the field, which exists for today and is thrown into an oven tomorrow, will he not much more clothe you, men of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What might we eat, or what might we drink, or what might we wear? For the Gentile people seek after all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all of these things. But first seek his kingdom and his justice, and all of these things shall be supplied to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has evil enough of its own. In some ways, of course, that's maybe the most impossible, seemingly impossible counsel of all, but... You can see, though, again, if if we uh, if we just sort of project ourselves back in the time to whom he's speaking, the same people who have to ask for having enough, ask God to give them enough bread for the day, 
uh, the same the same people who are constantly indebted to others who are looking for any opportunity that might come along to take even more from them than than you know what little they have from them are constantly going to be in a state of anxiety, a state of torment even, uh, and fear. And so in one sense, this sort of seemingly romantic or uh, a flower childlike uh, <laughs> uh, passage in which we're told to put, you know, try not to worry and see, see behave like the flowers in the field that are that are arrayed so beautifully by God and, and don't have to to spin garments for themselves. We should look. There's actually again a kind of practical advice in that that, that shouldn't be overlooked or or whose importance should be ignored. The poor suffer constant fear, and he's telling them that uh, they're enfolded in the love and providence of God. And that they, they, you know, they have to release themselves from that fear in the trust of God, and that this is uh, this is a, a thing in which they can trust. You know, on the other hand, of course, also it's it's again it, it reemphasizes that that those who seek it's not just the poor who suffer this anxiety. There's a kind of cruel and destructive passion also for on the part of those who are constantly seeking wealth. Uh, seeking material good and goods and material ends that's spiritually destructive as well. You know, again, don't be destroyed by your creditors and don't imitate them. Don't, don't be destroyed by being like them. Throughout throughout the uh, throughout the sermon, I said this this figure of Alponiros, the evil one, is is this uh, you know looming, ubiquitous almost presence, but it's not the devil. Or if it's the devil only in a in a in a secondary sense, the figure of Oponeros, you know, the oppressor, the one that you neither you, you, you don't want to allow to, you, to provoke you to anger, to cause you anxiety and grief, to steal from you, but also the one whom you must not imitate is that good, solid, prosperous citizen and creditor and businessman who uh, whose wealth is based on your poverty. I notice that he says to seek, not just to seek God's kingdom, but to seek God's kingdom and God's justice. And that brings up that dikaiosune idea. Could you say something about that? Well, dikaiosune is, uh, you know, it can be translated as righteousness and justice, uh, uprightness, rectitude, uh, depending on it, because th- these are not firmly distinguished ideas in Greek, or in fact in most ancient languages. You know, what is... But um, I-, I think that, uh, you know, so the, the just man, the righteous man, it, it, it's it's hard to know what translation to use there, but again, I, I prefer justice here because because God is depicted throughout as you know just the one who cares for the poor, who cares for the ill, who cares for the indebted. Uh, that His kingdom is a kingdom of justice in which in which it's not just righteousness, not really a moral purity is how we tend to read that word, and that's inadequate. I mean, the dikaiosine that, that is obviously preached throughout the Sermon on the Mount is an actual concrete condition of justice in which the poor are not exploited, in, in which, uh, you know, the rich and the powerful do not enjoy 
all the power and the weak and and the destitute uh, are simply uh, a resource to be plundered. Uh, you know, I, you know, the, the the kingdom is a concrete condition uh, in which these things are no more because these things are abominable to God. Uh, so I much prefer the translation justice there because I think that's the, that's that's precisely what's it, what what it what's at issue. Whereas to say righteousness, I, I think once again it's too easy to turn that into some vague and abstract name for a kind of moral decency, well, which and, I think falls far short of what the sermon is talking about. And the idea of kingdom, Basileia, would. I mean, as I understand it, is the idea of reigning authority and power. So that's it. It is something that does give you power. It is a it is a source from which you can derive strength. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, Vasily just means I mean, yeah, it means kingdom. It means the re- the reign of a king. It means reign. Right. In the same way, you know, it again, has both that meaning of kingship and. And the actual power of kingship. So, yeah. Well, that's you know. So, if you're in a kingdom and you're you're representing the king, then you are representing the power and the authority. You're acting un- with that power and authority. I just think that that gives a way of people of feeling that they're acting with some power and authority in this, you know, in this world in the kingdom of God. But it's. It's giving them the ability to move in good and positive directions. Well, it's it's also clearly a power bred out uh, 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 of a certain uh, freedom from the anxieties, the cares, and the vices that that are bred in in the world of power, uh, and uh, that is unfortunately the state of affairs that Jesus is addressing. The next section is on how we will be judged in the same way we judge others. Judge not that you may not be judged, for by whatever verdict you pass judgment, you shall be judged. And whatever measure you measure, it shall be meted out to you. And why do you look at the straw in your brother's eye, yet do not perceive the beam in your own eye? How is it that you will say to your brother, let me take that straw out of your eye and look, the beam is in your eye? Charlatan, first pluck the beam out of your eye, and then you will see clearly how to pluck the straw out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, neither cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them with their feet and turning shatter you. Well, yeah, I mean, there's there's good you know reason why I prefer to translate Dikaiosini as justice rather than just righteousness, because quite often in the way we use the word now, a, a righteous person would would be calling attention to the the uh, uh, straw in his brother's eye. Now, again, uh, as with the rest of the sermon, we're, we're talking about the perfection of a character, you know, the, the, the creation of character in the image of God, right? That uh, uh, which is curious because, of course, we're told also that God will 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 judge us, but but that is the judgment of perfect goodness, you know, of of, of the Father, and the you know the perfection that that would do the will of the Father and imitate the goodness of the Father spontaneously is not a reactive one, right? And again, it's 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 not 
a discrimination between myself and another. It's not setting myself in contrast to another by practicing my good deeds before them and, you know, attaining to a certain eminence in, in their opinion of me. It, again, it, 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 it's, it's precisely that which does not uh, separate me from others. It's the, it's the goodness that just spontaneously uh, gives to all who need. I have noticed that whenever I have cast my pearls of wisdom before others by showing them the you know my perception of how they could improve themselves, that that has often not gone well. <laughs> well, it's not just the case that people don't appreciate it. Uh, it it's that that you know. Let's be honest. For the most part, we don't know what the hell we're talking about. I mean, you simply we we we. we and, and and perfectly goodwill. I mean, we've all had these experiences of uh, thinking we know what will what another needs. I mean, judgment needn't be a judgment that another is reprobate or or beyond redemption. I mean, the judgment just might be that you, you know, I think what you need is this or that or this is the, the you know you need to go back and get your graduate degree i mean it can be something as simple as that there's nothing wrong with giving advice but it's when we think we we, we we've understood uh uh and and uh, been able to uh see for another what it is another requires you know we, we, we are in a very we do put ourselves in a very perilous uh, position because, as you say, I, I've had those experiences myself. Things have gone terribly awry in one or two cases. Uh, the point once of losing a friendship, probably because I deserve to lose the friendship, but with the best will in the world, you know. So, but anyway, we're getting off on uh, <laughs> I, I, I take your point. Let me put it that way. <laughs> okay, the next section I'll call on the Father in heaven who gives good things to those who ask him. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds. And to everyone who knocks, it shall be opened. Or is it not the case that no man among you, if his son should ask for a loaf of bread, would give him a stone? Or if he should also ask for a fish, would give him a serpent? If you, therefore, who are wicked, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in the heavens give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, all such things as you wish men might do to you, so do to them as well. For this is the law and the prophets. It's not a, necessarily our experience of life that everything we ask for is provided in a way we understand. But, you know, nonetheless, the, uh, the challenge of the uh, sermon there is that it is provided what interests me about that passage, though, is that it's a straightforward command to his disciples and to his followers to draw an analogy between how God is toward them from how they as fathers, or presumably as mothers, are toward their children. This is not a small thing. Um, you know, it, it actually is not normal uh, for the time and place for Jesus to insist on calling God Abba. You know, that's uh, calling God Father or Papa or whatever you want. It's not, uh, it's not deeply written into the Jewish tradition of the time. It's not, it's not uh, abhorrent to that, it's not repugnant to that tradition. 
But it is, you know, arguably a little odd. Uh, and yet we're told here, and in a way that, that I've actually seen some theologians reject, you know, I mean, honestly, uh, a debate I had with the Thomist about universal salvation. It was, so, well, the analogy is, is you know, the, the, the difference between God and uh, the fatherhood of God and the fatherhood of human beings is infinitely greater than whatever likeness there might be among them. So you can't draw any conclusions from it about about whether God would would condemn someone to eternal torment. Well, at, at, at which point, of course, the entire uh, exercise, the entire uh, analogy becomes meaningless, right? It means what it says, apparently, is if you want to understand God's love to you, for you, or God's attitude towards you, then or how God would have it be between him and you, you need only think of what it is to be the father of a child from your own experience or the mother of a child. And that analogy is sound. Take it seriously. It should govern your understanding of who God is. Well, I think that's very important. I also notice that Jesus has that phrase then about the fulfillment of the law and the prophets again in the golden rule, which we talked about earlier. It's interesting how Jesus connects the law and the prophets uh, together. Indeed. Uh, the next one is on the narrow passage leading to life and the broad path leading to destruction. Enter through the narrow gate. The path leading away to destruction is broad and open, and there are many who enter by it. For narrow is the gate and close cramped the path leading away to life, and those who find it are few. Yeah, um, well, I mean, just as I said, this, this path of spiritual perfection, being perfect as your Father is in heaven, is, is, is a difficult path and requires real application. It's, it's something of a common idiom, though. I mean, it sounds kind of terrifying, though what it's saying is rather simple, which is stay on the right path. Don't, go on, don't get distracted and go wandering off because you might not find your way back. And, uh, you know, if you don't, there might be corrections ahead that are less pleasant than than, than you'd like, but the the, the language, uh, as a fairly common idiom at the time, isn't isn't quite as threatening as it sounds. So much as it's a very sober warning that uh, the path of perfection is a very specific, difficult, uh, and and precise form of life. And you can become easily distracted from it. And once that happens, there's no guarantee that you'll find your way back. But again, I take this to be just a, like a, another notation to that, that strange and almost incomprehensible command to be perfect as your father in the heavens is perfect. This is sometimes used by infernalists to suggest that only a few will attain to heaven while the broad mass of humanity will go into eternal torment. Well, if so, then, then it was rather odd of him to bring up all that business of, your of, of thinking of God as your father <laughs> just a few verses before. No, again, as I say, this is a common enough idiom of the time. And the salvation, I mean, even then, we're using the word as though we're understanding salvation in this specific institutionally forensic sense of those who get to go to heaven. It's just talking about health, well-being, as opposed to those who destroy themselves, uh, you know, who end up 
like a corpse tossed into the valley of Hinnom, or you know, those who 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 uh, who find you know who, who ruin themselves rather than finding that perfection. But I, I honestly don't think we're talking here about final absolute salvation as opposed to damnation. This is still very much a practical counsel about how to live in this life and how to be become perfect as as opposed to being you know thwarted in this world but again you know thinking of christianity always as uh, thinking of the gospel always as this religion of of either or of being saved or damned and that's the whole thing that's the whole issue of whether or not you got your ticket punched i think is one of the sicknesses of christian tradition it's it's misread so much of the tradition as being all about this one desperate uh, situation in which either it's everything or nothing. I, I think that's an artificial imposition on the text and on the tradition from later generations in which the meaning of the gospel has been contracted into nothing but a quest for personal personal salvation from what otherwise is a universal doom. And I just don't think that picture is what exists in the teaching of Christ. He's talking, yeah, I mean, he, he uses a lot of imagery of apocalyptic in his in his teaching and a lot of the imagery of, of Isaiah and Jeremiah. But what, what you find is much of that seemingly eschatological language is concerned with intrahistorical, intramundane realities, such as whether, you know, you achieve spiritual maturity and perfection or don't. The question of the great assize or final salvation here is always creeping in as if that were the burning heart of the Gospels, and it really isn't. In fact, for all the talk that you get in Matthew, distributed throughout Matthew, less so in Mark and Luke. In fact, in Mark, it's not it's actually not there at all, apart from one mention of the judgment and the resurrection that's not even very clear. In Matthew, it talks about the angels gathering up the, you know, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the thorns to be burned, the branches to be burned, or you know, the, the arrival of the Son of Man and all that. There's only one place where we have any language of, of judgment, and that's the, the Olivet Discourse, the little, the little Apocalypse, which is concerned exclusively in the in the primary sense with approaching historical disasters it's like you know like isaiah it's using a language of of cosmic disruption of divine intervention of judgment to talk about what are actually historical events and there's no reason to assume that that's not what jesus is talking about whenever he mentions these sorts of things and there's no uh, there's no precise picture of the sort that the the say what you call the infernalists. I've never heard that word before. I would never <laughs> use that word. <laughs> you know, but I mean, it it, it just it, it banalizes it. You know, the, the the what's being said here, which is something that you know is is a perennial spiritual wisdom that it's hard to achieve spiritual perfection, and that the failure to strive to do so that can lead you to, you know, a life that's thwarted and ruined. But it says nothing about the ultimate mercy or wrath of God. I just, you know, I mean, this is just a confusion of categories.
Well, to me, this gets at the question of why I would want to be a Christian if all will eventually be saved. Well, one very practical answer is that I want to follow Jesus and stay on the life-giving path, and I want to avoid destruction. I mean, you know, being destroyed doesn't mean God lacks the power to rebuild you from scratch. But uh, from scratch, but presumably one's hoping uh, for, for a happy and and makarios, you know, blissful growth yeah. into the presence of God. Yeah, I want the I want the fullness of life, please, not the not the destruction to which sin leads. But again, I I think again this um, this strange misreading of 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 the Olivet Discourse, and I would include the judgment scene of Matthew 25, because remember, even there you have Jesus arriving within, I mean, you know, Jesus talking about the Son of Man arriving within an historical crisis in judging the nations. Well, that's a highly apocalyptic and allegorical language. It doesn't mention resurrection. It's not really talking about uh, you know a specific picture of the end. It's talking about a divine judgment that's always present in history, or maybe at the end of history. Sure, but to take that that picture, which is clearly united to this uh, Isaiah-like warning about impending catastrophes within history, and then reduce the entirety of all the language of the Gospels to nothing but you know, the either-or of, of salvation or damnation in that, on that last day, rather than the condition of, of spiritual existence in this world, of a life that's led, uh, that leads naturally to the presence of the kingdom or not, is, I think, incredibly destructive of the meaning of the texts, or at least of their richness. The next section is on how the fruit determines the tree. Beware of false prophets who come to you garbed as sheep, but who are ravenous wolves within. You will know them for their fruits. Persons do not gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles, do they? So every good tree produces good fruits, but the diseased tree produces bad fruits. A good tree cannot bear bad fruits, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruits. Every tree not producing good fruit is felled and cast into fire. From their fruits, therefore, you will know them. Not everyone saying, Lord, Lord, to me will enter into the kingdom of the heavens, but rather the one doing the will of my Father who is in the heavens. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and exercise demons in your name and perform many acts of power in your name? And then I will declare to them that I never knew you. Go away from me, you workers of lawlessness." Well, again, I mean, it's been it's been made abundantly clear by this part point uh, in in the sermon, and again, it will be made just as clear later in the gospel. Obviously, that that the things that matter uh, are justice and mercy, uh, and without those, one is not you know one is not a citizen of the kingdom. One hasn't entered you know God's justice. Uh, God's love. So the the, the ability to uh, cast out demons, for instance, or perform miracles in itself is is proof of nothing. If it's detached from, or if it's devoid of that which is most needful, um, and uh, you know, it is it is a it's a curious thing. I mean, uh, it's impossible to say. In fact. <sighs> 
it's made impossible to say by the complexity of the imagery used in the Gospels what it is to say that the kingdom of God is present or absent, has arrived or will arrive. So again, trying to assign a precise narrative to what's going on here is perilous. All you know is that the conditions of that kingdom are the ones that he's fairly clearly enunciated. You you have to forgive your brother, you know, or sister. You have to, you, you mustn't be like the wicked one, the the wicked man. Uh, you have to strive to be perfect in the way your father is perfect, and the way your father is perfect is that he gives without surcease, without reluctance, uh, and not you know indefinitely uh, performs the good for no other purpose than the good itself. Well, um, I guess when I was, when I was growing up, the, I didn't go to, didn't have much background in church, but the times that I went, I was very terrified by these infernalist kinds of preachers. And over the years, I learned not to be afraid of that because I could see the kind of fruit that it was producing. That in other words, I needed to look spiritually for, for places that were producing mercy and generosity and forgiveness and humility and so that that i say that just helped me distinguish where i should be the thing is the uh all the language of judgment which is good you know to know that we're morally accountable and that we do pay and, and to be honest in our heart of hearts we wouldn't want not to pay all of that becomes corrupted when you have superimposed on the text something that's not there which is the discourse of eternal torment. Within the confines of history, it's clear. There's some kind of reckoning in our, in this life. You know, that, that there's something that's worthy of the kingdom, something that, that, and this again is a metaphor, is like a corpse to be thrown out into the valley of Hinnom, or like a dried branch to be burned away or like chaff to be burned away, or or like some debt to be discharged in a debtor's prison. Something to be destroyed, something that doesn't enter in, and that prevents you from entering in wherever and however the kingdom is manifest, whether it's in the present, whether the kingdom is within you, as it says in Luke, whether the kingdom is a real intrahistorical or, or, or intraterrestrial condition of social justice that somehow obtains in a world that God reorders, whatever it is, right? All of that language of judgment, of accountability, of, of becoming good and pure and perfect, as opposed to ruining oneself through anger and lust and hatred and, and, and violence, okay, turns into a joke. When you superimpose upon it this image of infinite vindictiveness in place of the image of the divine father that you've just been given in the sermon, because there is no way, I don't care how cunning your dialectical skills are, there's no way that anyone can make the notion of an eternal torment visited on a rational nature, either a notion of either an image of divine justice or a division or a vision of divine goodness it is such a disgustingly evil stupid and contemptible idea that it is nothing less than than the absolute corruption and negation of everything that you're getting that, that the sermon on the mount 
actually says. It turns the whole thing into an evil cartoon. There is, I didn't mean to go off on this, but I mean, it's clear. There is no language of eternal torment for those who fail. I mean, that's not what's going on in the Gospels. Anyone who thinks that that's what's going on simply thereby reveals his or her hermeneutical ineptitude and ignorance. But what is going on is, is an extraordinarily demanding and severe discourse of spiritual perfection, of the peril of spiritual ruin, whatever calamities that brings with it, and whatever it will be required, perhaps, to correct it. But what is not going on is this imbecile narrative of, of a lottery in which you either get it right or you suffer for eternity because God's love is just like that. God loves you so much, he'll torture you for eternity. It's a contemptible nonsense. And it, I don't see how anyone can read the Sermon on the Mount and not see that, that, that this... But, but of course, that's the problem. You're reading it through the imagery that's been imported into it by this tradition. You start with the assumption that what he's talking about is just heaven and hell in the simple-minded and banal sense. You know, either you're going to be happy forever and get to play with, um, with the puppies forever in the Elysian field, or blissful vision of God, which doesn't involve any puppies, which sounds like hell to me anyway. <laughs> or you suffer forever. That's it. That's it. You know, that's, that's the whole story. It's then instead of uh, the spiritual richness of the Sermon on the Mount, what you have is uh, a game show challenge in which the rewards are immense, uh, but 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 for fail if you don't win the game, uh, you know the, the to lose the game is to lose everything forever and ever in the most horrible way imaginable. Uh, a God who created on those terms obviously is is the worst, most barbaric mythology that any heathenism that you care to feel contempt toward might might possibly come up with. Well, let's move on into the beginning to the summation of the sermon. Did I sound like uh, I was a little bit uh, a little bit uh, committed to one view or another on that matter? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I don't want you to be repetitious, but it's true. I mean, that's the thing is, is, is if you think about it, if you subtract that prior concept that you that that either or of heaven or hell in those terms and then read the sermon through as if you never had that as your initial expectation then you see the beauty the richness and the mystery of the thing but the moment you superimpose this this childish nasty mythology on it all you see are a number of challenges and and hurdles to be clear to be cleared and it becomes a cruel game well, let's go to this last section here. I'll call it on the security of those who hear these words and enact them. Everyone, therefore, who hears these sayings of mine and enacts them shall be likened to a prudent man who built his house upon rock. And the rain descended, and the rivers flooded in, and the winds blew and fell upon that house, and it did not fall, for it had been founded upon rock. And everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not enact them shall be likened to a foolish man who built his house upon sand. And the rain descended, and the rivers flooded in, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house. And it fell, 
and its fall was a great one. Right. I mean, I think that makes the point, right? That that, that what the sermon is about is uh, the perfection of spiritual life, about a life that doesn't come to nothing and doesn't and, uh, doesn't come to ruin. It's 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 in part um, counsel of prudence. You know what what a prudent man, a wise man, would do is uh it, you know to be honest it, in that way it has a you know odd sort of similarity to the kind of you know, sometimes Confucian sometimes Taoist uh, uh, councils and other faiths that that that, that are not you know that are that are obviously not about a final absolute destiny, but about a life correctly lived that blossoms into the fullness of what it is to be human or blossoms into the fullness of what it is to be human in the image of God in this case. And, you know, that's a beautiful passage because it makes it clear. Uh, he, he knows he doesn't end. This should be, you know, it, it doesn't end with a, a dire warning of, of, you know, final torment in, in, at the hands of a God whose wrath has been excited by your failure, simply saying that, you know, this is the, the stable foundation of a life that leads to that perfection that should be the aim of all you do, for failure of which, if you don't, if you don't found your life upon these principles, it comes to rack and ruin. That's just a general observation. It's not even a threat, you know. Well, and then we conclude with the response of the crowds. And it happened that when Jesus completed these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them like one possessing authority and not like their scribes. Well, it doesn't speak all that well for the scribes, you know. But, I mean, in a sense, I mean, it just means one who is speaking from his own authority as opposed to someone whose job was to interpret the prescriptions of the law. He was telling them how to live, not not simply telling them how to conform themselves to particular, say, dietary laws or purifications and so forth. I think that's all it means is that that it's they they recognize that these are the words, like the words of a prophet. They come with attesting to their own authority, not not simply glosses upon upon the six hundred and however many. I can't I suddenly I can't remember the number laws of Moses, or many human laws, or divine laws. Well, sometimes when I talk about Christian universalism, or my understanding, sometimes people will say, well, you don't you don't believe in hell, then, and I'll say, well, it's, it's not so much that. I, I might not believe that there's any kind of eternal separation for God from God, but I believe there's destruction in this life, and there's destruction in the ages to come that is necessary to the degree that we make it necessary. So I just want to live my life so that I don't have to go that path of destruction, and I want to encourage other people to do that, but I want everybody to be doing that because of a God who they believe truly loves them is drawing them towards that, a God who is worthy of imitation. And that in itself should be a sufficient answer to the, what was that word you used, infernalist? It's yeah, infernalist. Yeah, completely new to my lexicon, I'm sorry. <laughs> because that's precisely what you lose. If, uh, uh, if 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 you take the infernalist line, it's not, you know, it, it's a curious thing. Um, the presuppositions determine so much, and and then uh, it becomes a, a very difficult matter of learning how not 
to see what isn't there <laughs> again. But the thing is, once you get in the habit of it, I have to admit, uh, it would never occur to me to read the Sermon on the Mount as, as um, a program for getting into heaven rather than, than going to an eternal hell. It's just not, uh, it doesn't even feel that. I mean, that sounds absurd, I suppose, but it just doesn't even have that atmosphere about it. That's not what's going on. It's a, it's a collection of pragmatic and moral and spiritual and poetic logia about the difference between uh, a life that is oriented towards the perfection of God uh, as you know the God of good things, love and bounty and generosity, as opposed to a life that destroys itself. You know. Well, I think in order to get the whole feeling of the Sermon on the Mount, it, it's good to go through the whole thing. But it's helpful for you to be able to understand the languages and help us with the original practicality of the context. Uh, so I just appreciate your time and your scholarship and uh, and your help. And I wish you a happy uh, and good baseball season. Well, thank you. And uh, pray for the Ukraine. Yes, that is. Uh, we should we should all be doing that. All right. So take care. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.